we left off there last time uh, at the Holy Day. I want to pick it up there for a little different reason today, and this will continue the series on how God would build a temple. <clears throat> As we saw during Unleavened Bread, God began working with the people that He had promised to do uh, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and then through Joseph. And over a period of generations, he worked those people that he was going to work with into a very difficult situation from which only he could extricate them. And we saw some of his marvelous works. We saw some of their dire attitudes and difficulties that they went through, how they had trouble believing God, believing he was God, believing he would do what he said, and then when he did, time after time, they still had difficulty accepting and believing <clears throat> that his word was good and he would follow through with his promises. So, Exodus is the story of that. We came down to chapter 20, in which he lays out the Ten Commandments and says, I am God, and these are the things that you are to live by. That was very likely given on Pentecost uh, at that time. Uh, the best research we can indicate seems to fit that, <clears throat> plus the fact that God gave the Holy Spirit in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost. It's one thing to have the law. It's another to have the help, the strength, the need uh, to be able to keep it. And the Holy Spirit came as a comforter, as a help, to help us keep the spirit of the law in the way that God really intended from the beginning. But we've seen over and over how difficult the situation is. Now, to continue this, uh, verse 19 of chapter 20, it says, They said to Moses, Speak you with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. So all that God did to test them, to try them, to prove them, was to get them to the point where they would quit devolving into sin so very rapidly and would begin to actually follow his ways, his laws, his precepts and ordinances. Now, he had specifications here in verse 22. The Eternal said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. <clears throat> you shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make to you gods of gold. Uh, those are precious metals, valued then as now. And God did not want them making images or gods of gold and silver because the intrinsic value of those metals could make them easy to worship and to replace God with the gold and the silver. So he said, verse 24, An altar of earth you shall make to me, and shall sacrifice thereon your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in all places where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. So the earth God gave us to live on commonly. Uh, we don't see much gold and silver around. We see dirt and earth. That means that 
wherever you might be, you could pile up some earth and make an altar before God and worship Him pretty much anywhere you happen to be. <coughs> and if you will make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you lift up your foot upon it, you have polluted it. Neither shall you go up by steps to your altar, that your nakedness not be discovered thereon. So they could make an altar of stone, but even then it had to be natural stones, not shaped, not hewed, not in that sense despoiled of man, nor were they to make it high enough that they could climb up or walk up on it, uh, because that would defile the altar, and they could even die there for that matter, get up on the altar and have a heart attack and and your nakedness be discovered on it, uh, that wouldn't be so good either. In other words, God is setting some things out to make them special. Now, I'm not going to go through chapter 21 and 22. Uh, what he gives there are some ordinances that help explain how to keep the Ten Commandments, essentially. Various things you're to do with one another and how you're to take care of, of these issues. And that isn't my point at this time to go all through those various ordinances, but to grasp and understand where God is going here. Let's pick it up in chapter 23, down in about verse 14. Three times shall you keep the feast to me in the year, the feast of unleavened bread, and eat it seven days, as I commanded you in the time appointed of the month, Abib. For in it you came out of Mitzrayim, and none shall appear before me empty. We are to bring an offering before God those three times. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. Uh, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year. So the three seasons, Passover, Pentecost, and then the fall festival seasons. We won't go into all the detail. Let's skip to verse 8, 19. The first of your first fruits of the land you shall bring into the house of the eternal your God, uh, not seeding a kid in his mother's milk, and the meaning of that is bandied about, and I won't take the time to get into it today. But let's get to verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So they were going to have divine, angelic guidance. God had prepared a land and a place as He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were to be led there. <clears throat> and He says in verse 21, Beware of Him and obey His voice. Provoke Him not, for He will not pardon your transgressions, for My name is in Him. So they were to be very, very careful to follow instructions, follow directions, do what they should do. But if you shall indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I'll fight your battles for you, God says. So he gives some promises here. He's making an agreement, a deal, a covenant with them. For my angel shall go before you and bring you into these various tribes, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. 
In the history of Israel, they did not generally do that. In fact, generally they did not do that. They disobeyed, and they had all kinds of troubles. Now, the patience and the mercy and the love of God is demonstrated here. He took people who had flaws, who had faults, who had sins, who had adverse attitudes, negativity, you name it, uh, carnal human reactions, not godly reactions, didn't think like God at all, tended to murmur. Uh, we don't murmur today. That was something ancient Israel did. We, we've gotten over that. We don't murmur anymore. We gripe and complain instead. I, I think they're all synonyms. <laughs> but God was willing to work with what was there. And that should be encouraging to us. None of us are what we need to be. We have aspirations of being what we ought to be, but getting there is difficult. Just as it was with them. Nothing has changed. Human nature is still just like it was, and God is still just like He was. He's still merciful and kind and patient. He will punish at, a, at times, but He brings people through punishment and shows love again. So He says, don't... Make gods and don't worship other people's gods. Verse 25, And you shall serve the eternal your God, and, shall bless, and he shall bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. Some pretty good promises here so far. Uh, not be sick, not be ill, not have those problems. Your battles fought for you. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in your land. The number of your days I will fulfill, so no... Animals or babies would die at birth. <clears throat> I will send my fear before you and will destroy all the people to whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. In other words, run away from you, be afraid of you. Uh, then he would send hornets uh, before them to run out the tribes that were in the land already. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against you. But little and little I will drive them out from before you till you be increased and inherit the land. So he was even looking out for them in terms of lions and bears and predatory animals that might be around. Uh, he wouldn't just devoid the land of those peoples, but they would go out a little at a time. And those people were not to dwell in the land, lest they pull Israel away. Uh, chapter 24, verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Eternal has said will we do and be obedient. Just as we took his word, began to understand it, and said, We will follow this word, every word of God, we will follow, and we were baptized and committed ourselves to that, and had the laying on of hands to have the begettal of the Holy Spirit so that we could live up to it, and yet even yet, we have difficulty doing so. So there's a lot to be said here. 
24.12, the Eternal said to Moses, Come up to me in the mount and be there, and I will give you tables of stone and the law and my commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So God dealt with some issues before he moved to what he had next in mind. He wanted a set of laws, a way of life, that they were to follow so that they might have peace in the land and their relationship with each other and with God would be good. That's what he wanted all along and had since Adam and Eve. So he's setting this up with an agreement or a covenant that he made with them. Now, the next thing he does after delivering them, dealing with their attitudes, trying to get them straightened out, giving them a law to follow to which they agreed, he's going to build a tabernacle. He's going to build a place that he might come and dwell with them. Let's see that in chapter 25. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that gives it willingly. With his heart you shall take my offering." And this is the offering which you shall take of them. Now, interestingly, he says this needs to come from the heart. Something they are will willing to do. Now, they've said they are willing to obey. Are they also now willing to sacrifice that which they have for God's purposes? Are we willing, Romans 12:1, to offer ourselves, our bodies, our minds as living sacrifices to do the work of God, whatever form that might take in the era that we are in. And it does change from time to time and is about to again. But notice here, he didn't ask for wood, hay, and stubble. He specified the type of thing that he wanted because he had a project in mind. And we're getting to, in some ways, at least the edge of, if not the crux of what I had in mind with this series, how would God build a temple? What would he use? What, does, what would please him? What would fulfill his purposes? You shall take of them gold and silver and brass, the most precious of the metals, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, <clears throat> and acacia wood. Oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense. Onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. He will make it uh, clear later on what type of stones would be in the breastplate that Aaron was to wear. Now what's the purpose of all this? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God said, I'm moving in with you. I want to dwell among you. Now I think again we see the very great love of God here. These people were very, very far from what they ought to be. He had designs to make them what they needed to be, but that was going to be done over time and through trial, test, proving, sin and chastening, and all kinds of things that followed in his future.
But if he was going to come and dwell among them, he had specifications, conditions that were required before that could happen. I will make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. He was going to make a portable residence, a portable tabernacle or temple, if you will. Dare I say mobile home. <laughs> Uh, but that's essentially what it was. It was a pretty fancy one, all right. But they were to be on the move, and he knew it, for 40 years. And he wanted to be with them through that. And during that time... Now, he, had, he says in the book of Deuteronomy, we, we read fairly recently, that he might walk through the camp at night. And he wanted the sewage and everything all buried, so that if he walked through camp, he wasn't going to step in anything. God wanted things clean. He wanted things pure. He wanted things pleasant. He didn't want evil smells and evil things lying around. So now he gives specifications for the home he was to have. I found it interesting just thinking about it a little bit this morning that Herbert Armstrong started out with a, kind of a tin can or a temporary building as well uh, there in Big Sandy when he began to realize that people would come from all over the country to keep the free feasts. And I find it interesting that God here in this instruction mentions the feasts because those lay out his plan and his purpose for mankind and lead ultimately to salvation. So it's one of the first things he introduced here after he gave the Ten Commandments was about the holy days which are still kept, of course, in the New Testament, and we still keep today, uh, because we need to rehearse that plan year by year. But there in Big Sandy, he built, first of all, a little redwood building that was very small. He didn't realize, I don't think, at that point, what God was going to do. Neither did he have the resources to build anything bigger. But when he saw an increase begin... He built a big metal building, and that sufficed for some years. We all went and met in what we called the tabernacle, uh, or later on in what the college was there, it became known as the field house, but in the early years, it was all, always known as the tabernacle. And as it turns out, that was kind of a temporary thing, uh, which was replaced later on, even in Big Sandy, with some fine buildings. And in Pasadena, uh, there were fine buildings built, were some already there, but some really, truly beautiful buildings like the auditorium were built. Uh, God, I think, called us out here, I don't think that, I know that, to get away from the midst of Babylon and part of the process that I came to understand uh, was that we were to have a place for his people to come. And I came to understand as well that it was to be basically mobile homes. And I find the pattern interesting. I didn't think about Herbert Armstrong and the metal tabernacle until this morning. 
And then I got to thinking about our tin can that we're meeting in here today. Uh, I was looking around at the time for the uh, simplest, easiest to build, uh, the cheapest, because we didn't have much money, that would suffice and could be warm and comfortable. Now, it's not fancy, is it? Uh, just, you put Budweiser on the side and maybe sell advertising, I don't know. It's kind of a tin can looking thing. Uh, but then we sprayed it with this foam, which isn't really very pretty stuff, and it isn't on completely professionally and this and that. It's, but it's cozy, and it's warm today in spite of the snow this morning. So it sufficed for us. But I do believe that God has in mind, when we move from here, to do something much finer than what we have done to this point. He will send the people, He will provide the materials, and something much better than what we have will be built. But He started out, even He, with a portable or temporary mobile home, if you will. Now for Him, even though that's what it was, the materials had to be of top quality. Now with us, we can only attain the quality thus far that we can. This is it. Just as it was there in Big Sandy with the metal uh, tabernacle. But God upgrades. And even here we could use the analogy or the story of the former temple and the latter temple. How the former temple was built under Herbert Armstrong... But it did not measure up to what God intended. Therefore, it had to be blown apart, both as a spiritual body and even physically. That building in Pasadena, the house for God, as he termed it, was a pretty magnificent structure based upon comparisons with other structures that men built around the earth. It was... Pretty nice. And it did even have a little bit of gold trim here and there. But it still was inferior to what we're about to read about, by far. So for God to even have a temporary dwelling, they, they could live in, such as we have, our old mobile homes here, or even mine is, uh, I built as a temporary thing. Cheapest thing I could throw up was some leftover metal that we had and added a little bit to it and, and it kept the rain out. But I never looked upon it as something that I would live in forevermore. I looked upon it as a very temporary thing and built it as such. Uh, I've built houses for my family before that were by far and away of higher quality than this thing is. Uh, but... I wasn't thinking that way. I was thinking we're going to be here temporarily and then God is going to move us. And I still believe firmly that that is going to happen. So God allowed the people then to live in tents of cloth. They didn't have canvas, I'm sure, but uh, they could weave it out of wool, the hair of goats and sheep. Uh, I've seen some of those in the Middle East where some of those people today still live in tents. And they're made, uh, many of them, from uh, animal 
skins and hair and wool, even today. So it was okay for the people to live in that kind of thing. He didn't require them to use the materials that he used for him to dwell in. We are not God yet. We do not deserve that quality yet. We have a way to go before we can have that kind of quality with him. Now, when he returns to this earth, we'll eventually get in this series to what he is going to do at that time when we have qualified to live not him with us, as we read here in Exodus 25, but us with him. And then there will be a major upgrade, as we shall see. Meantime, that which represented God himself had to be done in a particular manner that was far above what the humans had. In other words, they needed to be able to see this is okay for us, but God has to have something much greater. That would keep them looking to Him and His greatness as opposed to their lack thereof. So when it came to build a place for God to dwell, this was special. And he said, whatever the people from their hearts are willing to give, let them bring it. But don't bring anything but these things. And we read a list here. Very fine, uh, whether it was ram skins or minerals or, or uh, precious stones or whatever. Verse 9, according to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. And you shall make an ark of acacia wood. The King James uses shittim. Uh, if you look it up, they say acacia. And to me, that sounds like an upgrade, actually. Uh, little, if you look at the word and the root of it, I think acacia sounds a whole lot better. This wasn't cheap wood. It wasn't bad wood. Uh, acacia is probably a better translation. However, they don't know for sure what acacia really is. There are more than one tree found in the Palestine area, or modern Israel or the Middle East, that they say could be it. And interestingly, in Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, it said that it was similar to one found in North America. I found that quite interesting, based on what we've been learning over the last few years. Uh, apparently, a very hard wood, strong grain, not a soft wood at all. And it said it repelled insects uh, and had thorns on it. I ran across a... They, they even commented it could have been acacia that was the burning bush, that it gave off a fragrant smell. I was trimming up a bush not long ago. It's a pretty good-sized one. Uh, had fair-sized limbs, probably that big around, and maybe they could have been made bigger. I don't know. But it was very hard wood, and on the inside it was had a very uh, almost neon yellow color and a very sweet smell, and it has yellow flowers. 
I don't know whether it was the original acacia or not, but it reminds me of the description that they give of acacia in the Bible dictionaries. And even the comment is made that there's something very similar in North America. I found that quite interesting. Anyway, they were to take the acacia. Two cubits and a half shall be the length. And overlay it, verse 11, with pure gold, within and without shall you overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. So they were to take this fine wood, and when they had shaped it the way it needed to be shaped, inlay it over outside and inside with gold, and a huge gold piece on the crown. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And they're, the, they're building here the ark uh, of the testimony we'll see here in a moment. So, gold rings to carry it by. Uh, you shall make, verse 13, staves of acacia and overlay them with gold. And shall, you shall put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, you shall not be taken they shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. A mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length, a cubit and a half the breadth, two gold, two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shall you make them. Uh, let's see. Verse 20, And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Uh, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And then he said there in verse 22, I will meet with you, and I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims. Verse 23, You shall also make a table of acacia, two cubits, uh, and so on. Verse 24, overlay it with pure gold and a crown of gold on it, a border of a handbreadth round about, and you shall make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. Now, if you made this all out of pure gold, it would be so heavy that it would have been very, very difficult to carry. But if they took the wood and overlaid it with a nice uh, overlay, it wouldn't be nearly so heavy, and yet it would have the appearance of pure gold. It was to be portable, after all. And then they were to make, verse 29, dishes and spoons and all of those things. Of pure gold shall you make them, and you shall set upon the table showbread before me always. Make a candlestick of pure gold. A beaten work shall a candlestick be made. This is pretty fancy, isn't it? I mean, just gold everywhere. And all the decorations and everything on it, it goes on to say. I don't want to read all of this and, and get bogged down. I want to make some points. Uh, talks about, verse 38, the tongs and snuffages. They didn't, they, that's not what that means. I don't know exactly what it means, but it didn't mean they were chewing snooze. Uh, be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels... And look that you make them after the pattern which was showed you in the mountains. So God had given Moses uh, a blueprint, a pattern, a dream, whatever means he used, to reveal to Moses exactly how to build this. 
Now, if you go back to Ezekiel's temple uh, in, in Ezekiel 40 through 48 and try to figure out how to put all that together and exactly what it's, look, what it's to look like, it's a very difficult thing to do. And I've looked at different artists' renderings. People have followed the directions there and tried to make something. Every one of them looks different. None of them look at all alike because it doesn't give you, ex- I mean, a, a true blueprint that you can follow or a picture or something like that. Uh, maybe God didn't want it built until a certain time, and I think that He will provide if that one is to be built here in the end time, and I think there's a good chance of that. He will provide a way to know exactly how that is to go together. He's done that in the past. He always gives a pattern. Those who do it will not need that pattern until it is time for it to happen. So, if it is to be done, that will occur. Then they were to have ten curtains, chapter 26, of the twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet. And a beautiful thing, very colorful. With the cherubims of cunning work shall you make them. It's interesting, they use badger skins. Badgers are an unclean animal, not to be eaten. But their skins aren't unclean for decoration. And they were to dye them red. That would be beautiful uh, red skins. Fine fur on a badger, too. The length of one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits. Twenty-eight cubits, uh, that's right at over forty feet, I guess. Eighteen inches, twenty-five inches to the cubit, depending on which cubit you're using. (coughs) And then it goes on uh, about making the loops and just exactly how these curtains were to be built. Uh, and the materials they were to use. Verse 7, You shall make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains, and the length thirty cubits, the breadth of one four cubits. Uh, these are pretty good size. And goes on to describe all that. I won't go through it all, but suffice it to say, it was to be done in a certain way using certain materials and it was to be done well. Uh, verse 32, You shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And you shall hang up the veil under the touches, whatever that means, that you may bring in there within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide between the holy place and the most holy. So they made a veil even in this temporary or portable tabernacle with a holy place and a holy of holies where God himself would dwell. And then they were to make an altar of Acacia in chapter 27. gives all the dimensions of that and on and on with the detail of it. Verse 20, or chapter 28 Take to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and and so on. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. And then we find throughout the rest of the Bible, God talks about holy garments and putting on uh, holiness and so on and so forth. And he did that from the very beginning. 
So they were to be both glorious and beautiful clothes that Aaron was to wear. You shall speak to all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me in the priest's office. The garments which they shall make will have a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a broidered coat, a mitre, a girdle, and and they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me in the priest's office." They shall take gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine twine linen, with cunning work, very carefully stitched together. Two shoulder pieces and so on be joined together. Uh, Scarlet and linen, as you read on down. Verse 9, you shall take two onyx stones and grave on them the names of the children of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the other six names on the other stone, according to their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel. You shall put them in settings of gold, and they'll be stones of memorial always you were to have, because they would be included as a breastplate that Aaron would wear with the holy garments and would have those names. You can fast forward to Revelation 21 and see the names of the apostles and of the tribes set in the heavenly Jerusalem and the new temple that is to come down. Let's see, let's go on down a little bit. In settings of stones, even four rows of stones, sardius, topaz, carbuncle, Emeralds, sapphires, diamonds, uh, ligure, agate, amethyst. We won't go into all of those. But the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold in their enclosings or their settings. So these fine gemstones, all set in gold on there. God's doing it up pretty good, isn't he? He, he, he likes quality. He wants holiness. And then they were to have gold chains, verse 21, to go with it, and on and on. Rings of gold. And then he would wear it upon his heart when he goes into the holy place, in verse 29, for a memorial before the eternal continually. Always there as a reminder or a memorial. Let's see. Verse 30, you shall put in the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before the eternal. The Urim and Thummim were used then to determine which tribe, uh, when God was looking to determine, let's say, a sin, uh, the stone that had the name of which tribe it was would light up. And then he'd know which tribe to choose. And they would work down to the family, and to the man. So God had a way of bringing righteousness or uncovering sin, if need be, in order that repentance and uh, chastening could come about because He wanted these people to be holy. He did not want them to be living the way they wanted to live by nature. And in the hymn, verse 33 Palm granites of blue and purple and scarlet, 
bells of gold between them round about, a golden bell and a pomegranate, and, uh, and so on. Verse 35, and it will be hung on Aaron. Verse 36, and you shall make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the eternal. So he's showing the very highest of standards. Pure gold is holiness to the eternal. Is it any wonder that he says that he will try us like gold and silver in the fire? And we have to represent holiness to the eternal. Well, there's a, a method to his madness here. He's not doing this to assuage vanity on his part, that he could have the finest and they would have less. No, he's the God of the universe. And they, he wanted them to understand his holiness and that he was special and far above them and that they needed to accrue to his type of thinking and living and holiness. You need an example to follow, do you not, in order to accomplish what you need to accomplish. So he set that up here. Now, later on, this plan would not all work out because of what? Not because of God and His planning and what He used, but because of people who would not live up to the covenant that they had made with Him and the holiness that is being depicted here. Then He would upgrade, and He would send Christ as an example for us to follow, so that we would have a perfect example, uh, again, holiness, perfectly holy example through Christ, just as this was to be as absolutely the best product that could be produced. Then it was to have blue lace and a miter, and it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, verse 38, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the eternal of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the eternal. So a high priest in that sense was a go-between. Uh, they looked to the high priest, even as Christ is the high priest today, that we all look to God through. And then they were to have certain garments. Uh, let's skip on here. He keeps giving all these instructions. Then he talks about the Sabbath. Uh, chapter 29, verse 44, 45. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the eternal their God that brought them forth out of the land of Mitzrayim, that I may dwell among them. I am the eternal their God. So he's giving here the conditions whereby he will uh, dwell among people. Now he tells us that we will dwell with him throughout all eternity. So there's some clues here, if you will. There's some clues to the type of building, the type of temple, the type of materials that God expects to be used. And didn't Christ say, some build with wood, hay, and stubble, and others build with more precious things? Speaking of character, speaking of living, and God expects us to 
except this standard. And he uses a lot of space here from Exodus 25 through to all the way through chapter 40. That's a lot of Bible time to be used to describe all that God wanted built to be carried about in that tabernacle. Chapter 31. He told Moses, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I have given with him Aholiab, the son of uh, Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So not only were they to make them with these fine materials, then God looked down and picked out the very best of the craftsmen that were in Israel. And He even gave them extra ability, extra gifts beyond what they naturally might have to be sure this was built to perfection. The stones cut just right. Everything in there had to be just right. And then he describes again some of these things. Uh, verse 13, Speak you also to the children of Israel, saying, Truly my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Eternal that sanctifies you. And to keep the Sabbath holy. And then in verse 16, it would be a uh, perpetual covenant, a sign between God and Israel. So even while he's telling them, now I want this built with the finest materials, the finest craftsmanship, and yet I want my Sabbath observed. Even while you're doing a work for me, I want you to observe the Sabbath. It was a memorial from creation too, was it not? So it's not just fine things, but also the quality of living. And the Sabbath was set aside to worship God specifically, to rest from these labors. Uh, And he gave him two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. So Moses had gone up to receive those, and immediately, almost, they said to Aaron, this was well within 40 days, I'm sure, while Moses was gone to receive the law written in stone. What happened to Moses? He's gone. Uh, let's do something here. And they thought... I know what let's do. Let's party. So they took their earrings and their rings and all of their ornaments and all of the gold and silver and they made themselves a golden calf. And this is what brought us up out of the land of Mitzrayim, they said at the end of verse 4. Boy, that's a quick transition, isn't it? From the God who parted the sea, the God who killed the firstborn and brought the plagues and destroyed that empire... And we made ourselves a golden calf. We know God when we see God, and it's a golden calf. That's it. So they rose up early 
and started doing their thing. Made them a god and then began to party and to dance and so on. God told Moses in verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, God had, through Moses, told them what kind of materials he wanted to make a house for God, even a temporary one. And you know what they did? They turned around and used those very items to worship a golden calf. Yeah, they used the best they had, but they made a wrong image, a false god. It came when Joshua had gone with Moses, and he could hear what was going on down there, and it sounded like war to him. They were making so much noise that uh, Moses said no. Verse 19, it came to pass as soon as he came near to the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and broke them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and threw it in the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Interesting. That gold would not be used to build God's tabernacle now after it had been defiled in such a way. And what he did, by grinding it to powder and putting it in the water and making them drink it, they drank their God. Now, what happens after you drink water? After a while, it turns to urine. And then they peed their God out on the ground. I think that's maybe what he had in mind. There's your God. Piss on the ground. That's it. Pretty dramatic, I suppose, but they needed to get the point. What kind of God do we worship? And of course, Aaron was not responsible, you know, he was there, and they said, let's do this. And he said, hmm, that's what you want. I guess that's what you got to do. He was a real leader. Verse 24, I said to them, whosoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, and I cast it into the fire. And out came this calf. <laughs> it, we just threw all this stuff in the fire. And... And it just kind of assembled itself, and, and it came out of the fire, a golden calf. Now, that's about as lame an excuse as I think you could possibly make, but how are you going to cover your behind any other way? You know, have you ever been caught in a situation where there really wasn't a good, plausible answer, and you, you said something really stupid? This one's one of the best. Then Moses said, i got to figure out, well, let's see, verse 25. Moses saw the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on God's side? you got all these naked people standing out there. And he says, who's on God's side? Let's, let's make a choice here. Which side are you going to be on? The golden calf that got peed on the ground? Or are you going to be on God's side? 3,000 people died there as a result of that. God plagued the people because they'd made the calf in verse 35. Yeah. 
Chapter 33, the Eternal said to Moses, Depart, go up there from here, you and the people which you have brought up out of the land of Mitzrayim, to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying to your seed, Will I give it? I'll send an angel before you. So, God said, very patiently, I see what you've done. You fouled everything all up. But I am going to take you there anyway. God is pretty merciful, pretty kind, pretty gentle, pretty forgiving, is He not? Boy, if we were just like Him, wouldn't we get along a whole lot better if we were just like God? As patient with one another as He was with these people? So He repeats that He will defeat their enemies ahead of them. Verse 5, he says, The Eternal said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come up to the midst of you in a moment and consume you. Therefore now put off your ornaments from you that I may know what to do to you. God was shaking his head and said, Well, we're going we're gonna to work this out. We'll, we'll make it work. We'll make it happen. I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he had his headaches, didn't he? He had to deal with himself, I mean with them, with them, just as we have to deal with ourselves, and he has to deal with us. Well, let's move on here. God makes a covenant with them in chapter 34. Verse 9, he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Eternal, let my Lord, I pray you, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among which you are shall see the work of the Eternal, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with you. Sounds like some of the prophecies we read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and so on, isn't it? Then he says again, I'll drive out your enemies. Twelve, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you go, lest it be for a snare in the midst of you. You'll destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Has to be done. How long did it take them when they got out of Mitzrayim to make a golden calf like the Mitzrayimites had? Didn't take long, did it? So God said, you've got to get rid of all that stuff. You can't even have it around. He tells us, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. We've been over that ground many, many times. The environment, the culture, the society that we have around us, we are not to partake of or be a part of. Boy, is it hard to get that done. We can look back at some of the kings of Israel and say, well, he obeyed God, but he didn't cut down the groves. He did this, but he didn't do that. And we can look at ourselves and say, well, we, we came this far, but we're still having trouble throwing it off. That's why he tells us in Isaiah 52 to sit up and quit being walked on. Don't let them bind you to their way of life, their way of thinking, their way of doing everything they do. Because essentially everything that mankind is doing around us is upside down, backward and wrong, and contrary to God. So we simply have to pull ourselves back from it. It's what we have to do. And be a holy people before God. That's what he's after. It goes on and on here. 
Verse 14, you shall worship no other God, for the Eternal, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Did you ever notice that? One of God's names is Jealous. I've never addressed him that way. Almighty Jealous. But he is a jealous God. He wants to protect and preserve what he has, and he does not want us to have other lovers out in the world. And he uses that analogy throughout the Bible. A whoring after other nations, other gods, and so on. He is tantamount to breaking marriage covenants. Then he says, again, reiterates it there to keep the holy days. And then in chapter 35, about uh, keeping the Sabbath. And they weren't to kindle a fire, verse 3, throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath. Now, they were in the process of building the tabernacle. And they were to take off on the seventh day and not even work on the tabernacle of God. And so it's talking here about building fires to smelt metal, to uh, do whatever they needed to do, to work on the temple. Uh, that is why I try not, on the Sabbath, to deal with certain things that have to do with God's work, or the church, or whatever, but I try not to get involved in... Uh, planning and making schedules and doing all that kind of stuff on the Sabbath. Uh, it's not set aside for that. I once went into a minister, very high-ranking minister's office in Pasadena. He called me in on a Saturday morning to talk when I was student body president because we had some things to discuss. So he called me in. It wasn't Herbert Armstrong, but somebody very near him. And uh, he was on the phone making... Uh, reservations for a trip. Uh, and, and even as a student at that time, it really bothered me. Yeah, I was part of the work. He was going on a, on a trip for, to do the work of God. But I thought the physical arrangements didn't need to be made on that day. Uh, there are six days a week that you can call and make airline reservations, motel reservations, or whatever you need to do, but that isn't the kind of work of God. Now, he says that the ministry in the New Testament work on the Sabbath. This is work for me. When I get done today, I'll be very tired, and you'll be tired of listening. Uh, but he says it is excused, this part of the work of God. But there are other parts that I simply, you know, I don't, unless it's a spiritual nature or a spiritual question, I don't answer emails and do that kind of thing that it could be done on a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, it's better, yeah, sometimes I've worked on a doctrinal issue, just like I might sit down and talk over a doctrine with somebody on the Sabbath. But as far as the general work, no. Uh, we need to set it aside from the normal work. And that's what he's saying here. Don't kindle a fire, even though it's the work of God. There's a certain type of thing that can be done on the Sabbath that you don't do, even in the work of God. Then again, he talks in verse 5 about taking from a willing heart gold, silver, brass, and all the things that we talked about before. 
and that they were to use these to build the tabernacle. So the altar or the mercy seat and all of that, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, he used those materials and the curtains and everything. And then for the tabernacle itself, he did the same thing. And in chapter 36, verse 1, here again, he uses Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man whose heart stirred him to come work and do it. God loves cheerful helpers, cheerful servants, those who can put their heart in it because they want to be there. He wants us to be a part of His congregation, a part of His church, because we want to be there, that we worship Him and love Him above everything. So therefore, we come and offer ourselves, such as we are, to Him as a sacrifice to Him and to others as best we can. And He doesn't want us to be begrudging of it. He doesn't want us to be proud of it. Christ made it clear, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. <coughs> you don't brag. You don't look for pats on the back. You just help. You just serve. Uh, you do the best you can to help wherever help can be offered. So God was looking for willing people. Willing people who have their heart in it will do a better job, right? Have you ever had a job to do where, you know, a paid job that you really didn't like? It was hard to do a really good job, wasn't it? To make it work and to be there and be happy to be there. I know when I first went to Ambassador College, they, uh, they gave me latrine duty. It was my job to go around and clean all the toilets in the dorm. And there were lots of them in Del Mar and the places that I had to clean. So when everybody got done with their potty business, Daryl came around and got to do all the scrubbing and cleaning of all their toilets. There was a purpose in them doing that. I would have preferred being in the letter mail receiving department and reading all these fine letters coming in from around the world or some of those higher jobs that they gave juniors and seniors but freshmen gardening and toilets and I think God knew I needed toilets worse than leaves to rake or something like that that's where I stayed for a good while and probably needed it I saw other people getting promoted and going up to mail receiving and doing the work and I was still cleaning toilets so God can take such as me and make me clean toilets until something changes in there and, and then you begin to take pleasure in being able to do a good job because if they come around boy and they did if that toilet didn't sparkle and shine and smell wonderful you had to go back and redo it. And you had to take almost the toothbrush and clean the showers as well. Uh, they were tile and they were hard to clean. But uh, it had to be done. And it needed to be done by those who needed it the worst. To try to get rid of vanity and ego and, and all those things that we tend to have. So God wants willing-hearted people ready to sacrifice. 
And sometimes he puts us through it before <laughs> he can give us certain privileges. So he knows what he's doing. We could go on through and read the rest of this. Uh, the people brought so much in chapter 36 that they were restrained from bringing uh, any more. Uh, the, the workmen said, we've we got all we need. We've got more than we need. Stop bringing it. Now, there's a kind of heart, though, that God is looking for. Just give, give, do, help, sacrifice all you can, wherever you can, for God. You know, you, you, you kind of lose yourself when you do that, and self doesn't become so important anymore. But we have our own little things that are important to us, and sometimes the things of God are not nearly as important as the things of self. So God expects us to put that aside and come and do what He wants done. And He has to get us trained and prepared for that. And I think we're still being trained and prepared for that. We haven't started some of the major work that has to be done at the end of this age, either physically or spiritually speaking. He's preparing us. He's getting us ready. He's refining us and purifying us so that we will be able to be used in the building that he is going to make, that it will overshadow that which came before under Herbert Armstrong. If we build buildings, they will be far better than anything Pasadena ever had. If we build character as human beings, preparing ourselves to be the bride of Christ, we will be higher than what we were before. We will have learned. We will have turned to God more wholeheartedly. We will sacrifice ourselves better and be more willing than we were back then. In other words, God is upgrading us through trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty. We're being tested and put through the fire to prepare us to be vessels in the temple of God. So there's a great deal here. Uh, I'm going to stop. Uh, you can read on if you want and go. But they made here in 39, verse 30, they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote upon it a writing like to the engravings of a signet, holiness to the eternal. Uh, as we read before, that's what he said to do, and then they did it. Verse 32, thus was all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the eternal commanded Moses, so did they. Remember Christ's parable about the two sons? One said, I will do it, and didn't. And the other one said, I won't do it, and did. Well, these people said they would do it, and didn't. And then they went through a lot, and then they did. And God accepted that. So they finished it. And then it goes on and shows all the gold and the fine things they used. As he had said. Verse 43, And Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as he eternally commanded, even so had they done it, and Moses blessed them. He thanked them. He appreciated what they had done, that they had done it just according to what God said. Chapter 40, quickly now. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shall you set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. So it was made in time to then all the pieces be put together and set up, on the first day of the first month. Then you had the annual holy days starting 14 days later. 
And he had emphasized throughout here more than once that they were to keep all the holy days. So he had the tabernacle ready. Now he is preparing and has a purpose for mankind that is carried out in the holy days or symbolized in them. And through that plan and that purpose, he intends to have us ready to be a part of the temple of God when Christ returns. And we have seen today what he expects, even in a mobile home for God. He wants gold, pure, silver, pure, the finest of skins, the finest of wool, the finest of everything, to make it a place of holiness for God. So we have a lot of work to do. They washed their hands and their feet, chapter 40, verse 31, before they went in. Verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Eternal filled the tabernacle. So once it was done, according to his specifications, he was willing to move in. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Eternal filled the tabernacle. So when he wasn't there, they could assemble it. When he was there, they couldn't go in. Now, when that cloud moved, they had to take it apart because God was not at that moment in it. They could take it apart, move it, reset it where the cloud stopped. God would come back in, and then they were not allowed to be in there at all. So when God was there, He was the ultimate in holiness. And they did not live up to that standard as yet. We're still working. Verse 38, For the cloud of the Eternal was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God kept His presence before their eyes at all times. He has given us this word, which we've read some of today, to see the kind of quality He wants in a temple for God. And this is just the first one. He has others that we can examine as well. But if He puts Himself before us, He expects us to be as much like Him as we can be and to build the kind of character with the type of materials that He used to build a temple. For are not we, and our bodies and minds, the temple of God? So we need the same quality in here. No junk minds. No stinking thinking. We need to control every thought and bring it into the captivity of Christ and have the same quality that God desires in even a physical temple in our minds. And that's ultimately what He's trying to show us so that we can live up to it. And as they, we have trouble doing that. That's why we keep working at it day in and day in, out, day after day, because it's hard to build with that kind of materials, to have the very, very best. But that's a project we can continue to work on.